0: You're listening to Ramble Without a Cause with Heather. And Chloe. Will there ever be a series free of mindhunter? Is Shrek 2 a cinematic masterpiece?
1: If you're searching for a pretentious chinwag, you've come to the right place.
0: Okay, I think we got it. Yeah, I think so. Welcome back to Ramble Without a Cause.
1: In this week's episode, we're discussing what makes a fictional character likeable, and whether a protagonist should always be likable. Do you ever find yourself secretly rooting for the bad guy? If so,
0: why? And you can follow us on Instagram at Ramble Without Cause for all the latest episode updates. So I wanna kick this off with a strong question. Mm-hmm. Um For the listeners out there, uh, Heather and I haven't actually discussed this yet, so I'm quite excited. (laughs) I want to know what your favourite characters, at least at the moment, are and why. Like, what do you find so likeable about them? Okay, so I've picked
1: kind of the top three, I'd say. And the last one is a bit of a manic decision, but I'm just going (laughs) to jump into (laughs) it. I love that. (laughs) I mean, just picture these three people at a dinner party. Uh, so, for the, the, well, the first one, we're going to go with Joan Holloway from Mad Men. Oh, yeah. The Strong second thought. is Jeff from Rear Window. Ooh. And the third is Daniel Hillard, a.k.a. Mrs.
0: Doubtfire. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't think I can top that. Because, you know, the six of our characters are going to be sat together. Because I've still got three to add to this. What a but mess. That is it. A- <laughs> That is a very strong start. Can we please talk about, well, all of them really, but I just need to know about, you'd think I was going to say Mrs Doubtfire, but why Jeff from Rear Window, first of all? You know what? I can't even really
1: figure it out myself. I just admire him and his drive to find and expose the truth. Everyone doubts him from the beginning and his theory about 4 And as a viewer, you're screaming at the TV because you know what Jeff knows. You know the truth, or Mm -hmm. at least you think you do. And what I like about Jeff is that you can find him in most stories throughout film, throughout TV, literature. And you're always rooting for that character, for that Jeff in whatever story it may be. And looking back now as a modern viewer, like some of his behaviour could be viewed as a little problematic, But I think it comes with the territory of 1950s film, unfortunately. But I just, that's the thing. I don't think a character has to be flawless in order to be likeable. I just like him. He's a bit of a window shopper. I like how nosy he is. I I sort of see (laughs) that in myself. And I'm like that. I like to uncover and expose the truth. And I think that that is is why I'm so drawn to him.
0: Yeah, That's an interesting one. Because I haven't seen Real Window in a long time. Mm. Um and I don't remember liking him that much. I okay. I certainly understand um his drive and his character, like the kind of admiration behind that. Um but yeah, I can't really I, I love Jimmy Stewart, that's the thing. And yeah. everything that he's in, and obviously Hitchcock was a big fan of his. But um so he can make anything really. And I do I agree with what you're saying about 1950 cinema because I remember watching it in in our lecture and the way mm. that he talked to the Grace Kelly character I cannot remember her name at this point no exactly it was, it was, and that says a lot in itself but um, <laughs> she's kind of strong though in a lot of ways she you was kind of put him in his place a bit but Rear Window is a a brilliant film so and I totally get that choice. Yeah,
1: I, I do wonder if it is more of the case that I just love James Stewart and that everything he touches turns to gold. But I yeah, I like an underdog and there is something quite... I don't know, maybe it's the fact that he is in that wheelchair and he is vulnerable. You you empathise with him and you you really want
0: him to succeed in his pursuit of forward. I feel like I remember him being kind of a bit grumpy and he's mm. very pessimistic, but I guess the position he was in, there was a lot of reasons for that. Um, I would say to anyone listening, go check out Rear Window because it's a great film. We don't want to give any spoilers. Um, I don't know if you've seen any Hitchcock films before, but it's definitely Mm -hmm. one of his best. And I also like what you said about the trait of not necessarily having to be flawless. So we got a lot of people saying that when we uh, put our question on Instagram. We kind of just said to our followers... Do you think that a character has to be likeable? And um, a couple of people said actually that it depends on the context. Mm. And a lot of people said no. In fact, I don't think we really had anyone that said yes. Um, so I think this thing of being uh, not being flawless is, is interesting to unpack. And there's definitely going to be some characters that we go into later that will very much come into that. Um, Shall we go on to Mrs. Doubtfire? Uh, yeah, I think it's probably saved for last.
1: That... <laughs> no, we can go with um, Daniel Hillard. Yeah, I nearly put Will Schuster in, but then thought, oh, better not.
0: <laughs> do not do this to me. <laughs> I spent too long last night <laughs> watching videos on YouTube about that character and the cringeworthiness. He needs I'm to not be in jail. Character at this point.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but in terms That's of... for another day. Yeah. No, in terms of uh, Mrs. Doubtfire, you know what? I don't know. The whole film is just manic. Um, <laughs> it's honestly... It is honestly one of my favourite films of all time. Since watching it as a child, it's just stuck with me. And I could sit here and I could spout the likes of, oh, you know, my love of Michael from The Godfather. But no, like, I, I love Robin Williams. He was and will always be a genius. And... I guess I am drawn to the conventional good guy in films and he does always play the good guy. Some might even say typecast roles, mm. which isn't that much different from the likes of Tom Hanks, but I've never been able to quite connect with Tom Hanks on a really deep level. But Robin Williams gives me that,
0: whether it's... I love a bit of Tom Hanks, though. I
1: do, but I don't know. I just I just get more from Robin, whether, it, whether it's him that. playing John Keating... In Dead Poet Society or Sean from Goodwill Hunting, I don't know what it is. I think with da- Daniel Hillard, Mrs. Doubtfire, it's just the empathy that you feel for him. And I do wonder whether the likability of a character comes down to more of the audience's participation. Yeah, um you know, it doesn't matter who they are, whether they're the good guy, whether they're the villain, an antihero. None of that matters. As long as you can empathize with him, that's it. That's the like golden ticket, if you like. And I, I just love his character. And yeah, it's it's it is iconic in itself. I love, I just love it.
0: You made me want to watch it again. now. I haven't seen it in years. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the audience participation—that's very true. Um, I suppose if we're saying compared to Tom Hanks, obviously they're both great in their own right. I yeah. think Robin Williams—he he did just light up the screen. Mm. and that you're just constantly drawn to him and whatever he was in. I suppose, as well as that, there comes to a point where we're in it for the actor because they're so well-known, not to discredit his acting, but I think when they've established themselves and maybe they, they do get typecast a little bit, I think we're just, our love for that person just filters into... It does, um, yeah. ...any film that they're in. Yeah, I, I think
1: with that character i just admire his drive to, to see his children no matter what it's a comedy it's it's light-hearted it's fun and i'm not ashamed to say that i love films like that and they do instantly
0: make you feel good I, yeah it is one of my all-time favorites it is a classic okay so on to the final favorite character this one's a bit of a different one
1: yeah, it it's definitely more complex than
0: the other two. <laughs> yeah. And I'd, I'd more have to kind of get to, I think, there, to unpack.
1: Yeah, no, it is, which is interesting to sort of leave it last because Joan, Joan is one of the most compelling characters in the entire series, I think, other than Don and obviously Peggy. I mean, I love Peggy's character development, but what I like about Joan is that she isn't naive She understands the world that she's living in and she knows how to overcome obstacles in the workplace and how to be a successful woman. I think in some instances she she does have the upper hand on these men. And I just loved watching her grow. I mean, I've watched the series a few times now, but just watching her grow each time you get to notice a few of the little nuances and vulnerabilities about her. And especially in the beginning, I I really didn't think I was going to like her at all the first time I saw her come on the screen. And you see how torn she is between domesticity and just her love of work. She's deeply torn between that. And she really wants everyone to feed into this false narrative of her happy marriage when it's not happy at all. You know, she doesn't even believe that herself. She is deeply complex and one of the most subversive characters in the series and I just love by the end, she she is alone. She is one of the last characters that is by herself. She doesn't have a man and she's her own boss and she realises that she doesn't need a partner to make herself feel complete. And I think it is the perfect ending for her. I I just warmed to her so much and I love her strength. I I, I just, yeah, I can't get enough of Joan. And her fashion sense as well. Oh God, just her beauty as well. I mean... I just love everything about her and yeah with Peggy I think I do relate to Peggy a lot more you know as a young woman but I couldn't warm to Peggy like I could with Joan there there is a coldness and a callousness about Peggy and maybe that is because of the environment that she's in and amongst the men that she works with she does become like them in some ways but I think yeah Joan is almost Don's female counterpart and might be why they never ended up together because they see right through each other but I yeah I just love Joan she she is definitely uh one of my all-time
0: favorite characters yeah I can I, I absolutely love Joan as well that's a great choice and I think with Peggy and Joan because the women in that program are so strong and they do have without a doubt the best development in the show Um, equally in their own rights I I find it interesting how they definitely pit the two against each other I don't know Mm. if you felt this but there was a point where I for some reason felt like I had to like one of them or the other and I think that's what's so clever about Mad Men is the writing is so subtle there's so many things going on behind the scenes and behind their eyes almost that the acting is just incredible but so is the writing and I definitely feel like it reflects that period of time sexism in the women 60s. having to kind of fight mm-hmm. and and jump over each other basically to get to the top and there was some competition there I think as well wasn't there With, again I haven't seen it in a little while
1: yeah um With Joan...
0: a competition there between Joan and Peggy I actually warm to Joan more in the end as well I think with Joan yeah she isn't perfect and everyone thinks that she is
1: she's kind of like a 1960s venus she's constantly compared to the likes of Marilyn Monroe mm-hmm. and she she feels the pressures of the expectations of that time and to be this beautiful being but I think by the end of the show she just completely rejects that and she wants what she wants and she goes for it regardless of what other you know well what men think of her and I really do feel as though I know Joan, so yeah, that that's why I love her and this ending for her. So, with you, I think now it's time for you to discuss <laughs> your top three.
0: Let's see who else will be joining our dinner party. Yeah, let's dive in. It'll be—I kind of like the idea: us at either end of the table, and then two rows, three on each. Two teams fight to the death oh my gosh that would be very interesting with these characters okay so my favorite three I have a lot of things to say I I had a bit of a crisis when I was trying to think of my favorite (laughs) characters it's a weird one because there are so many films and books and tv shows that I adore and when I actually sat down to think about it I was like but can I pick out characters that I truly love? It's like picking favourite children. It's so difficult. Yeah, it's just not possible. from others. And all these different mediums that I've absorbed have kind of merged together. I felt like such a, a fake fan and <laughs> all this kind of stuff. And I realised in the end, I find it hard to pick favourite characters because I think too much about them. Mm. And often they annoy me or fill me with joy uh, simultaneously within the same episode, for instance, um, or the same page of a book. So I find I like complex characters um, and I like a lot of films where they are very morally dubious, but I I couldn't say that my favorites, um, for instance, in Nightcrawler, I could definitely not say that Lou Bloom was my favorite character. It's just one of the most interesting. So in the end, I settled on three mm-hmm. pretty comedic characters, and I'd say they're just who I'm feeling right now. Are they a representation them. of you? <laughs>
1: That's well, what just I just have to see about. because
0: I have I have prefaced this quite extensively, haven't I? So, <laughs> <laughs> so we'll go into the first one. I'm going to say the best for last. The first one, I would say. Uh, Vod from uh, the comedy series, British comedy series Fresh Meat. Oh, okay. <laughs> I This was one that took me a while to think of. I've watched that series probably three or four times and it's brilliant to me. It's, it is one of my favourite series, not just comedy series and her characterisation is incredible mm. and <laughs> the voice that she has and everything as well. <laughs> just something about her character and she is more complex underneath but she has a lot of fun what in that role and vod is just if anyone's gonna make me laugh out loud is vod i don't know if you've seen it i've seen bits
1: and pieces of it but yeah i wasn't (laughs) expecting that because i haven't heard like what the words fresh meat in years i know it's been over for a little while now but yeah no i remember it being such a big hit but I've only really seen a few episodes, and I do remember this character quite well. So I can definitely see why you've chosen her. She's definitely unusual.
0: It's all in the delivery. Yeah. And the way the songs describe the other characters. And it is it, the characterisation. Like, she just, uh, the actress, I'm so sorry if I'm mis- mispronouncing this name. I think it's Zora Ashton. Yeah, I'm looking it up now actually... because I
1: I recognised her instantly. She's been in quite a few things. In fact, she's actually been in Velvet Buzzsaw alongside Jake yeah. Gyllenhaal.
0: Yeah, no, she's a great actress. Yeah, and I just love to... There's a lot of things that I can watch where I'll laugh in my head a bit or have a bit of a giggle, but yeah, she makes me die, basically. <laughs> and uh, I think that's important in a character. I, that's why I'm drawn to comedy characters or a lot of the time some of the side characters are more like we were saying earlier more likable for me because they add that level of sometimes self-deprecation I know not everyone finds that appealing but just I don't know it's not just this kind of serious Harry Potter-esque type Oh, yeah, sometimes running characters... around just being kind of a bit boring, and I mean, obviously, I'll get slated for that because <laughs> people love Harry Potter, but he is the most boring one, you know, in in the whole film franchise. But if we're gonna
1: talk about like the main characters being unlikable, I, like for with Gavin and Stacy, I just can't stand <laughs> neither Gavin or Stacy. Yes, I love the mum I love the other characters. But there's just some. Yeah, sometimes you just don't like the protagonists. They're they're boring. Sometimes you need uh, some of the supporting actors or someone you know waiting in the wings of a subplot to come on screen and like do a funny one liner. And and sometimes those are the characters that hold the show or the film together.
0: Yeah, and it's like um obviously I know there's been some controversy with Buffy, but I'm trying to get to a place where I can appreciate all the people that worked on the show. And not just uh, Joss Whedon, mm. who is, you know, we're throwing in the bin at this point. Uh, Bye. But it's like Oz in Buffy. It, he's really subtle, played by Seth Green. Uh, and it's Willow's boyfriend in, the, in a couple of series of the show. And he just kind of comes in there with his dry one-liners. I actually didn't put him as one of my favourites, by the way, so I'm being greedy at this point. Um, <laughs> yeah, and he kind of lifts the episode sometimes just add something that you didn't know you needed uh so sorry out there to anyone who genuinely somehow does love harry potter more than any of the other characters in harry potter i find it hard to believe yes but we love daniel radcliffe just as a side note
1: he's just the least interesting in the entire franchise that's Mm. named after his character
0: (laughs) i'm not quite sure why i linked that to vod but Hey ho, <laughs> we we get there somehow. I wanted to talk about Harry Potter, so we're leaking <laughs> yeah, off of have, um... other
1: characters. Like I do it all yeah. the time. It is it is hard <laughs> to just pick a concrete yeah. few that you love.
0: Yeah, and I suppose that's okay. I'm settling that with myself. I I mean, you gave such detailed and fantastic answers as well, and to me posing that question to you. But I just think, yeah, sometimes it's just someone who can completely let go and not care about looking stupid. And and Vod can do that. She, You know, Vod is... There's no one else like that. There's no other character like her, really, either. I know it's a bit of that chaotic, like, drinking, smoking, like, uni student, but mm-hmm. there is something different about Vod. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so I'd say my second choice is, uh, at the moment, Claire... From Fleabag. Oh, my God, yes.
1: (laughs) Oh, wow. Kind of bummed that I didn't pick Claire.
0: Claire. I look like a pencil, pencil, Claire. (laughs) Like absolutely It's funny you say that, because
1: I always just picture her with the haircut,
0: with the dodgy, uh, skewed haircut. That's how I picture Claire. I mean, I love Fleabag anyway. You could watch it any day of the week, any time. But Claire makes the show, just the dynamic with Fleabag, it kind of, although Fleabag's very funny, it's not the same it's not, it's, again it's the delivery it's mm. the the deadpanness of her, it's the fact she's such a serious, solemn bitter character at points but again, I suppose coming back to our main question of what makes her likeable, there is a sensitivity there and she does care deeply for Fleabag and although that isn't always easy for her to translate, she does, and she's very protective of her, and obviously they haven't always had an amazing relationship, but yeah, she has her back she's yeah, she's loyal, she's fantastic and um, she has the best lines in the show
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely, and just the whole Claire and Claire dynamic it's it's only yes. only she would date someone with the same name yeah. and same self obsession. Yeah, as her, and just
0: those little moments as well, where she's kind of looking at Fleabag, and you just know that she's outwardly it's so bizarre. She has this like kind of duality of oh, everything's fine, everything's fine, and then you just know she's on the cusp of a meltdown or the cusp of some she's like saving inside. <laughs> yeah, and there's no one who is more deserving of a top three than Claire. Good old Claire. Yeah. And it's really hard for me to talk about these characters actually without giving spoilers. I think if you
1: haven't seen Claire. Fleabag yet that's your own fault.
0: <laughs> Let the spoilers Shame out. on you. <laughs> Pause this right now and go and watch Fleabag and then come back and think about what we've said. Think about what you've done. <laughs> Priorities. <laughs> oh gosh this is the right laugh this episode actually (laughs) (laughs) okay shall i go into my final
1: yeah let's just do a quick recap joan holloway jeff Mm -hmm. from rear window mrs doubtfire claire from fleabag and Vod from fresh meat so yeah it's women are kind of women are dominating at the moment
0: I'm, i'm glad because as we segue into this last person uh bit of a spoiler it's not a woman but I have been likened to them though so <laughs> I, I just want to do a drum roll for this because I can this try is something you should see coming I'll do one <laughs> do you see it coming any guesses quickly <laughs> um Shrek oh gosh you're, you are right in the ballpark it is Prince Charming <gasps> It's Prince Charming from Shrek. This is classic Chloe. (laughs) My OG. I will find a way to talk about Shrek 2 in every single episode, right up until we watch Shrek whilst we're drinking and record it, because that will be coming. (laughs) Yeah, uh, Prince Charming from Shrek, pretty straightforward, fucking hilarious guy, so self-absorbed. Again, I I love a voice. I I love a funny voice. Uh, And he has, uh, Reaper Everett has one of the best voices in the industry. (laughs) Oh, do you think so? (laughs) Classic. I just, uh, Shrek is obviously like, there's so many characters. I'm already planning
1: the Halloween outfits in my head now.
0: (laughs) But I have, you know, my friends commented on one of my pictures once and was like, it's giving me real Prince Charming vibes. And I've got to be honest, I was very There's a striking resemblance there. The luscious (laughs) locks. The dewy skin. The bright blue eyes with soft and bouncy <laughs> His vocals in Shrek. <laughs> Iconic. I just had to have fun with this one because obviously he's that he's supposed to be the baddie, but they're they're aware from the start they're just mocking him. You know, there's nothing scary about Prince Charming. No. Even his own no. mum shoots him down at every opportunity she can. She won't even let him finish his sentence. <laughs> like when he's sat in the flying coach and he's trying <laughs> to tell that harrowing story about not being able to get to Fiona before Shrek. Devastating. And yeah, he's not even allowed to tell that before the bloody fairy godmother cuts in. No, He's really hard done by, actually. Yeah, constantly undermined. Mm. But I, I love I just love a heightened character like that. There's nothing too much to think about. Everything they say is funny. Uh, maybe that's why I like these characters, because there's a bit of a relief there. Yeah. In a, a lot of the films I love and a lot of my favourite films, the people in them don't come near my favourites off the top of my head because they're so interesting, but usually quite intense. Um, and I don't watch a lot of animation, but I have to confess, animated characters I'm in the shows that I do like, I'm really drawn to because I almost said marge as well i did wonder if she would yeah
1: and don't get me wrong we both love a gritty human story but sometimes you just need a prince charming or a marge to to save the day or both ideally imagine
0: the crossover
1: (laughs) i don't think i can i don't think i want to. i think i just I, we need another shrek film or is that is that asking for too much there was going to be a shrek five i, I think
0: i think it i think they pushed it too far with shrek four. you know it's not bad it's, sorry by the way is it possible to become like as a job like a shrek expert because or, or like a shrek historian because that that's what I'm gunning for now, after lockdown, I need is over to find out if that like... exists. I mean,
1: there's probably people. <laughs> there must be someone on Earth who's done a dissertation on the life and times sure. of Shrek. And I,
0: I am, I'm quite gutted. I, I chose Byron. A over, missed opportunity. Uh, Shrek and I really think it was, and we all know realistically, Heather, that uh, this was just an opportunity for me to showcase my impressions. That that's how shallow I am at this point. Yeah, I think you're probably right. <laughs> Anyway, that was a lot of fun. So those six people will be sitting at a dinner table. Uh, I feel like we're almost going into... I was going to say, yeah, what
1: are we all going to order?
0: <laughs> oh, it, it could be, it
1: would be an interesting one. I'm picturing it in the swamp. We've all been We've all been invited down <laughs> to the swamp in luxury cabins. Oh, Claire,
0: no. Can you imagine Claire getting down with that swamp? Oh, I no, can't.
1: she'd be out of there in a shot.
0: I think Vod would embrace it. I
1: think Joan and Claire would probably pair up and they'd be
0: out of there. Do you reckon? I reckon they'd either pair up or they'd butt heads. Hmm. Who do you reckon would win in a... Sorry to incite violence, everyone, (laughs) but it's necessary in this instance. Who do you think would win in a fight to the death out of those six characters? We have... I'll give us five seconds to think about it. I think... Five, four, three, okay, two, so first one. of all, Jeff
1: is in a wheelchair. One. That's just not possible. It's going to be Joan, Joan of Arc, if she can
0: do it. <laughs> We're obviously going to pick our own, aren't we? Prince Charming would be the first character. I mean,
1: Prince Charming has a sword. He can't use it, though. He and like he's animated. Is he even there? Is he present? <laughs> the swamp is animated, originally. Yeah, that doesn't even... Okay, I think we're going off on a tangent. He wouldn't even set foot in the swamp himself.
0: (laughs) Okay, you know what? We're not even doing our main (laughs) question anymore. This is it. We're going to think for the next hour about who would win in a fight in a swamp with these six characters. I think what's uh, an interesting observation that you also said earlier is that none of our favourite characters... We're from a book and we studied English literature. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what that says about us or what that says about writers. With literature,
1: narrators and protagonists, I think they have shape shifted immensely over the years. And I don't yeah. know. I think it just goes back to that thing we were saying earlier about being drawn to maybe. Characters in the
0: background or the sideline yeah. of them really—it's what you're supposed to find likable. But actually, when we really think about it, or we grow up, we don't find likable anymore. So I guess if we think about the uh, cast that we have, they are all very different, um, but most of them are very comedic. Yeah, I
1: think. They they do have a lot of good or adequate traits in the audience's eyes. I, I feel like there is a grey area with a lot of main characters and protagonists now. It's not so much as good versus evil anymore. There is a bit in between. I feel like archetypes yeah. are drastically fading into the background. And although we love a classic trope from time to time, um, because it's something we can acknowledge and we enjoy watching it as it plays out, it is important to tell stories with realistic consequences and and circumstances that aren't centred around the idea of a hero or a villain. I don't think it's as black and white as that because most of the time people are neither. They're somewhere in between. Yeah. And those are the characters that really grip me, the characters that have secrets that maybe even lead double lives. They're not morally flawless. We do continue to watch them, and I don't think it's just out of morbid curiosity we see something in them that we see in ourselves. People or like
0: we empathise with them. People like a kind of a tragic story as well. And I think sometimes it's about relating to even in just the smallest way, in ways that you don't even realise. But I think that's a really good point about good versus evil and how archetypes have changed throughout the years and that's a really great way for me to kind of touch on something that I've been thinking about a lot, which is, which is literature and is Wuthering Heights um, with the character of Heathcliff. Because, of course, he has been an archetype for so many romantic leading men throughout the years in books and TV, pretty much any art medium. Yeah. And there is a lot of archetype going on there because there's the kind of tortured, passionate lover you know, the, the, the handsome, dark, mysterious man. Um, and some of that is pretty obviously based on the kind of Byronic hero trope. Yeah. Um, and obviously Wuthering Heights was written in 1846 and that's kind of been going for so many years now. I feel like that is still a bit of an archetype, but even from the beginning, it was never simple. I mean really with Heathcliff it's not even that he is good. The the sympathy comes from uh, they they set up at the beginning Bronte sets up good versus evil with Cathy and Heathcliff and then Cathy's brother Hindley who is just this kind of absolute tyrant um, and terrorises them all and it's awful to Heathcliff. But what I love about Bronte is that I love that book but every character in it is infuriating and what we relate to there is and they're not likable really at all i I love the book but i've never been able to kind of settle this with myself is how do i love a book so much that i passionately have these passionate reactions to these characters but in the negative um i think it's beautifully written but i think with heathcliff We want to like him because he's had a really tragic past, and Kathy is his true love, and she's taken away from him. But the fact that he terrorizes everyone from that point on, um, and basically does everything he can to incite violence and hatred, how has that been used as a kind of idyllic trait for leading men to have? Because this leads me on to think of people like Edward Cullen. Um, and that there's a lot of toxicity surrounding that. I don't know if this is strayed slightly, but I was trying to make the point that it's complicated on why we find people likable. And really, you get to the center of it: is it more just about the kind of torturedness of them? That maybe it's about the passion of them, the the, the, the heightened emotions, or men yeah. showing those emotions more than it actually is there being anything good about them? I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, no, I
1: think in terms of that archetype, that strong leading man with a bit of a dark past or those kind of mysterious elements to him, that has existed since the beginning of time in a lot of Greek classics, Yeah, um, stories within the Roman times. It's always been there and it still exists today. You can sort of trace a lot of these patterns throughout modern cinema, throughout the years, they, they still exist i think maybe they've been watered down to fit the times which i appreciate obviously mm. but i'm not quite sure why we are drawn to them i remember one of our lecturers at uni uh, she always referred to it as hovering shite she absolutely hated it it
0: is and a I think, love-hate thing i, I mean, think so it's it's
1: it's the perfect exa- example of showing how complex um, yeah. the human spectrum of emotion is and, and how complex we are as people. And I think this is the thing. We understand uh, certain characters' motives and we know why they're doing what they're doing, even if we don't necessarily approve. And I think that is enough to keep us reading or watching.
0: Yeah. Do you know what I think it is as well? as I- I'm not sure what Bronte intended, With Heathcliff and Cathy and that's the thing sometimes I wonder how much of a disconnect is there between what the writers want us to like and want us to root for compared to what's actually being translated to the audience and what and what we gain from it but I know a lot of women that over the years that have loved this Byronic hero type character but I think maybe Bronte's telling us from the start that it's it's not necessarily desirable. Um, And and I think maybe people throughout the years, writers have taken the most desirable tropes from Heathcliff and warped them and fit them to a character that maybe they could make a little bit more approachable, you know? And and maybe that's where that archetype has come from instead of it actually being Heathcliff himself being likable know if that makes sense but
1: yeah uh, no and i won't lie i am often drawn to a lot of these darker characters these male protagonists that have this this darker side to them
0: how much i couldn't get on board with what heathcliff was doing in that book it's, it's almost like he's straight up about it he's gonna be an evil bastard you know he's vengeful and that's it and and for some reason with kathy the level to which i really disliked her was more than Heathcliff actually and I do sometimes wonder if women throughout the years until very recently have been written as just less sympathetic. Yeah I think times have changed Uh, film codes have definitely
1: changed over the years you know definitely since the 50s and 60s and there's been more room for women to be talked about in a different light to show maybe more risque controversial character development and yeah there's definitely female characters that I completely loathe those archetypes of of women don't they still exist but are not on the level that they used to of you know the the virgin girl or the maiden versus mm. the wild woman seductress but they definitely still exist but maybe on a, on a smaller level, and I'm thankful for that.
0: Yeah. Um, one thing I want to ask you is, why do you think there has been a shift? Antagonists have almost become the new protagonist, or whether it's just not that black and white anymore. Um, I know we both share a lot of like the same shows and uh, movies that we love, that have some very morally dubious characters. Um, So I want to know if there's any of those that you want to talk about right now. Yeah, I think it it goes back to that idea of the anti-hero.
1: We understand their motives and and we don't necessarily approve. I think it is just about getting a more rounded view of society and realising that there isn't just a squeaky clean character and an evil villain character. you know, in the penthouse, like, rubbing his hands together. It's not as simple as that. And, yeah, I think a lot of boundaries, moral boundaries in particular, have eroded, and it brings me to the film Parasite. That is one of the few films that has, you know, has kept me up at night, questioning why I'm on the side of the Kims. And I've always viewed Parasite as a film about survival, about two yeah. families, the Kims and the Parks, both from two entirely different classes and backgrounds. One struck by poverty, whereas the other's excessively wealthy and out of touch. And I think e- even when things spiral out of control, we still find ourselves rooting for the Kims. And um, the Parks, they're not even particularly evil people. But no. it's their complete disregard for the working class that repels
0: yeah. us from them. And It's the framing of the narrative, isn't it? It's... Uh... It's bizarre how in some films or setups, we're really pushed to idolise and crave these characters that just reek of decadence and money. But a film like Parasite, it really does frame it because you get to see their household and where they live and the poverty they live in. And I think that's the angle it comes from, I guess, isn't it? Is where the film chooses to go with its sympathy from what it shows you I guess on screen. Yeah, you see their struggle,
1: you come to know it and mm. you you know why they do what they do and you relate I mean I probably would do those things in you know infiltrate a rich family, fool everyone and it does spiral out of control and yet we still were're on their side as the audience even when things turn ugly with the tuberculosis lie and the peach and, you know, people end up dying. It gets extremely dark, but we're still, we're still on their side. It's that vicious cycle of the lower class feeding the profits of the upper class, which then feed the Mm. lower class. It's a vicious cycle, but it works. And it brings you back to the title, you know, a parasite and a host. It's that, relationship that these two families have it is so morally skewed
0: yeah you're on the side of the the kims every time there's nothing better than a film that makes you think like that and i suppose this is what's really getting down to the root of the question is that what is to be likable it just it isn't tra- it isn't a simple question on the surface it sounds like it is but it it transcends just that uh, basic definition of likable and uh, it really is defined by the individual piece of work sometimes but that's what's so exciting now um and I wanted to come on to uh the crime thriller from 2017 um Good Time uh which for some reason I find it weird that the main character is Robert Pattinson when he was also Edward Cullen yes I I think he's come a long way so diverse the roles that he's taken up but I saw a so I guess I should probably say the basic premise of this film. It's 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 across one night, it's the events of one night, but through that night, following this character called Connie, you get so many insights into the rest of his life and how this behaviour that he this very, very morally dubious behaviour and how it's probably reflected outside of the scenario of that one night, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um so basically he has a disabled brother and they're not very well off and they they try to rob a bank in a, in a pretty ridiculous way. It, it goes badly, they try to run away. Connie, uh, the Robert Pattinson character, gets away, whereas his brother Nick, who really, he coerced him into trying to do the robbery anyway, um, he gets caught. So essentially Connie spends the whole night trying to get Nick out of prison, or well, he thinks he's in prison, um, obviously again I don't want to spoil it too much that's pretty much the premise of the whole film and we see the shady behaviour of Connie the whole way through he is the most self-absorbed, manipulative predatory man and it's truly anxiety inducing and that's what gets me is I don't like him at all when I watch it But why do I feel that anxiety? Because the film is still framing it Mm. so that I want him to succeed somehow. And I think the sympathy there probably does come from his brother because you feel so awful for his brother. But things like this, films like this are so clever and I just wish everyone could see this film because you want to look for these redeemable qualities in Connie because I think as humans we're programmed to do that. He's just callous. He... He gets what he wants. There's so many characters that he interacts with throughout the film, and you, just, you could just see him in action. We almost admire how slick he is at getting what he wants, which has disturbed me in a way. And I, I did see a quote from a New Yorker review that said that good time is a study in avoiding consequences. And they used the word monster to describe him. He's a monster of lies and violence and, above all, ego. And that, to me, resonated so much with earlier on, talking about people like Heathcliff. Um, And really, even the family from Parasite, they're not monsters. But I think there's a correlation there between avoiding consequences. Yeah. And maybe the ego as well. Yeah. With someone like
1: Connie, it, it just reminds me of Lou from Nightcrawler. And any sympathy yeah, that we have true. for Lou in the beginning, it's gone as as, as soon as the mm. film progresses. And it reminds me how society creates and rewards characters like this, like characters like Arthur Fleck as the Joker. You know, with Lou, he's a chameleon. Um, everything he does is learned behaviour. He's He mimics his behaviour based on those around mm. him, all in order to fit in. And it's just chilling to watch, like the scene with him and Nina in the newsroom when he's ne- negotiating with her over the money. It's the textbook example of a psychopath. Yet yeah. yeah, he also has traits that are admirable to the viewer. He's hardworking, he's driven, seemingly polite. And we also feel the secondhand embarrassment of his lows and his defeats. And that's where it gets confusing. That's where the, the lines become blurred. It's the same with Connie. You... There are these redeeming traits, but deep down you know that they're a monster.
0: Yeah, and I think it's kind of—I do think that writers of film, especially film at the moment, they have this clever way of playing with you. And that I don't know about you, but it makes me sometimes uncomfortable. That it's the same way we're all interested in like serial killers and true crime mm. things and stuff like that. Is that? They, some of these films are the most interesting and I could say now Good Time is one of the best that I've seen in recent years and is it comfortable that that's technically one of my favourite films now but the characters so awful, like the main character is so awful, it's like they've kind of won in that way, there's really nothing likeable but it's still the thing that lives in my mind, rent free, you yeah. know like thinking about that film Oh, it's one of my favourites so it's is one of those weird things where dark like very dark morally tainted films seem to have the most impact and it is almost like this thing of admiring the way that the film can make you feel so fucked up about it
1: yeah I think we are just invested in toxic characters and relationships and regardless of morals or what is seen as right or wrong I think it comes down to being on the side of whatever portrays the people's voice that's what's often yeah. the most favored you know based on the society and the culture at, at the time and there is that the product of society excuse which I'm not quite sure where I stand on you know with characters no. like the Joker sometimes I don't think there are excuses and no. I think it's important I to agree. remember that and it's the same with relationship dynamics like you know in literature and in film lolita there's no excuse for for that dynamic yet we're so invested in or i know i have been in the past in why that exists and and why i'm so so curious is it just human curiosity
0: or that's got me thinking literally just in the last seconds as you uh, as you said that about lolita is that maybe this whole time with archetypes of characters and things like that because of the maybe film mediums and tv and literature being so censored maybe the whole reason why we're all conditioned to want to like characters and want to hear about uh likable admirable characters is because people didn't want the public to be influenced by bad people i especially resonated with what you said about joker and where really, we shouldn't feel any sympathy for him. I think there is a worrying movement sometimes of people taking these films and TV shows too seriously. And I think sometimes people presume that the person, the director or the writer, meant for us to feel sympathy when they actually didn't. Like, sometimes we are responsible for how we take that piece of art into our lives. Oh, definitely. And the biggest part for me, the biggest thing that stands out for me is Breaking Bad. You know, Walt has grown up as this kind of straight edge guy and he's, it frames it in the beginning is him being kind of undermined by the people in his life. He's a teacher and, you know, he's just been diagnosed with cancer and he falls into this life of crime. Um, But as it goes on, Jesse, his accomplice who is the supposed to be the kind of lay-about, no-good drug addict. The sympathy, from my point of view, is more for him. It's so strong for him because Walt just surpasses him in the end is this good guy. And actually, I'm not sure he is doing it for his family. I think he's doing it for himself and his, again, the word ego, his own ego. Sometimes people have worrying sympathies because... The lady who plays Skylar, Walt's wife, she's not written as some uh morally clear-cut character no. either. But despite the fact that Walt is the one living this life of absolute crime, she's received the actress, Anna Gunn, has received death threats for, for playing his wife in the show. And that's when you've got to think, as with Joker, what has gone on here? I think it's know? Sorry that was very No, no, section. I think
1: it's so true these characters they they do present many dangers. They are a source of breeding violence particularly in young men. And maybe seeing that on screen it's almost like a a slice of approval or, or an admission that, that yes, I can get away with these things too. I even I will admit whilst watching I was getting annoyed with Skylar at times and I was thinking oh, no, she's going to foil Walt's plan and she's going to get in the way. But then to take it to such an extreme and to threaten the
0: actress in real life, that's frightening. I would say as well, Skylar annoyed me. And I was almost cross with myself. I was like, oh, why aren't they writing? And there's been some talk about whether they wrote Skylar to be kind of too unsympathetic. And obviously there is uh, some things that Walt does to her, which are just awful. And, And really the... Way that it, the program is framed is they don't even really um, go show that side enough, you know. And, it, and and maybe that is them doing it deliberately again. Is trying to play mm. with our heads of we catch ourselves. Hang on, I'm so angry at this man's wife for being mad at him for selling. Yeah, hey, he's selling the drugs. monster in the situation, and she's a very strong woman as well. There's a lot of things really that should be likable about her but some people are so angry that she's hindering his success and being a drug lord that they would be willing to threaten her life. It, yeah, it's crazy to me.
1: What do you think about characters like Amy Dunn from Gone Girl? Because I think I don't always take her seriously enough as a villain maybe because she is a woman and I think the fact that we might be willing to let her off the hook slightly just because she's a woman is quite troubling and it's a lot like that in real life too to some extent with women like Amanda Knox and a lot of high-profile criminal cases a woman's danger to society is always understated and I feel like Mm. they're, they're not taken seriously and they're massively sexualized like Foxy Noxy and such and I just think yeah do we not take them seriously because they're women? I think that's really interesting actually
0: and I think it comes from I actually saw this in a program last night I don't know um when this law was changed but until quite recently I think that a man am I right in thinking a man would be arrested or blamed on behalf of a woman if she did something or I suppose broke the law because women were deemed incapable of being able to oh my god commit a crime i might that might not be too accurate but I, I i basically i was watching it's a sin last night and that i think that's pretty much like the opening section or if like, that the were true scene. that
1: yeah if that if that's the case that could not be further from the truth because yeah women are, are you know they're capable of abhorrent things i mean and... i might
0: look into that more but I, i'm pretty yeah. sure that it probably wasn't even that long ago in in the scheme of things um I think with Amy, I do take her seriously, but I think there's a difference between uh, in Gone Girl, the book, and the film. In the film, I think it's actually better than the book, but I would say that she's... The quirks of her character that I I suppose that could make her the slightest bit likeable come out more than they do in the book. And I would say that um, Gillian Flynn's very good at basically showing misogyny within her marriage with nick but also the shortcomings and the flaws of both of them like they're both Mm. pretty awful and manipulative towards each other um but i would say that i'm definitely not too willing to forgive amy actually um because she does do some pretty horrendous things like no matter how nick has treated her yeah um i think it comes down to like the pressures sometimes of society and trying to be perfect therefore likeable
1: yeah I think that that's the danger sometimes you know I I wouldn't say it goes far to say that I like her character at all but you do end up sometimes making that mistake of um viewing that conniving calculated manipulative behavior for strength and I don't Mm. like that it can sometimes be perceived that way she's just as bad as all the rest of them the Lou Blooms and the Joker's yeah
0: And really, how can you blame, we were saying this, I think we said this earlier about how can you blame, how much does someone's past come into their current behaviour and their current actions, and I think there's a section, or a speech rather, that Mm. Amy has um, in the film and the book, and it's probably the best part of both of them, like it's a real standout, the cool girl speech, Mm. um, where she basically says that women have to be perfect, you know, they have to like dirty jokes and uh, anal sex and beer and basically like everything that the man likes. She kind of uses this as a bit of an excuse for what she's doing, like, oh, well, I tried to be this perfect person for Nick and it still wasn't enough. He'll still cheat on me, therefore I'm going to get revenge. And yeah, it's it's a rough time, like it's a rough gig as a woman to to be you know all of us have really at some point probably tried to be something we're not for yeah someone else but that if you think about that in the context of the most people they're not going to go and disappear and try and get their husband framed for it you know it's it's entirely on a separate plane of uh unstableness <laughs> Yeah, and no, and no, like oh, instability. Rather, that's not worse. Yeah, and,
1: and the relatability of that monologue, it tricks you into thinking that she's likable. I mean, mm. there's a lot that a lot of women can relate to in Definitely. in that monologue. Um, but the 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 foolish thing is, is that this this Amy is hidden under this amazing Amy, if you like, is a mask. It's an impossible persona to live up to, and the real Amy is hidden under these false personalities and pretences. And can I just say that her parents really freak me out. I feel like that's not mentioned enough. There is something really disturbing about her parents and yeah. partly might be the reason why she becomes this this monstrous person. Yeah. But yeah, you you do find yourself nodding along to it. Yeah, there's moments where you feel sorry for Amy when she gets robbed in that uh, motel. But those moments like that, it's the same as the monologue. It tricks you into thinking that you should like her. Yeah. And that's where Fincher is so clever, the way he, he presents and translates it onto screen.
0: Yeah, I think it's something of sympathy again, isn't it? It kind of links mm. back to what I was saying about Connie in Good Time. It's likability and sympathy, I think, go hand in hand. You know, who can we... I suppose we're following their narrative and their story, and especially with Gone Girl, as it's narrated, literally, by Amy, um, instead of it just being that we're seeing it on screen, we're also getting it Mm. from her perspective. And yeah, I would agree about Fincher. Like, it's a very disturbing film. I think it probably, with the parents, I'd say in the book that there's more there with the pressure of her having to live up to being Amazing Amy. Yeah. Um, I think that it kind of delves into a little bit more. Yeah, I think that's what shapes her into the person that she becomes. So... Are there any other kind of modern female characters that you can think of that kind of display these really manipulative and worrying behaviours and is kind of framed in a similar light to Amy in that they're maybe trying to change themselves to fit the mould of a man or to fit the mould of their partner?
1: Yeah, I think the one that springs to mind, it's a completely different genre, far more light-hearted, but it, it's that same manipulative crazy uh, neurotic behavior and that's Rebecca Bunch from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. It's not as well known as a show. I think it's massively underrated. She's a Harvard Law graduate. She's traveled across you know half of America to LA to work in some bottom-of-the-barrel law firm in West Covina (laughs) for this guy uh, that really isn't worth it quite frankly. It's just the most impulsive... (laughs) absurd thing to do yet she does it for love i suppose
0: yeah and an obsession i suppose obsession comes into it as well but even i mean crazy ex-girlfriend is one of my favorite shows because i think it's not as accessible because it's it's very popular but it's i think it's got a bit of a cult following you know it's quite Mm -hmm. niche and it's quite odd because it's i'm going to read this literally from wikipedia it transcends (laughs) genre it's a romantic musical comedy drama television series you've got like three different genres within there yeah it's a mouthful we we're kind of mentioning earlier how um I-, I suppose i was kind of splitting up comedy and drama in a lot of the characters i was talking about when really sometimes it's more nuanced than that and they kind of can come together and cross over different genres and we want different things we want different aspects in a character to be likable i suppose four different genres but with rebecca bunch um in crazy Yet's girlfriend it's a it's a roller coaster of emotions oh, with yeah. her character um you know she she suffers with mental health issues um and she deals with the stigma of that a lot i think because it, p- partly her behavior is not excusable um similarly to Amy, she does really awful things to the people that are closest to her Um, and not just one person as well, it's, you know, she kind of is harmful towards uh, her best friend, Paula and she has three prominent love interests in the show and to all of them she's you know, they've kind of hurt each other but she has these like revenge schemes I guess. Yeah everything kind of blows up in her face half the time yeah, and I think the the title is really subversive in itself. Like, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I think when I've mentioned it to people, and I've asked, have you watched this? And they've said no. I think people have thought it sounds very... I don't know what the word is. A bit, a bit silly, or like it's going to be taking the piss, I guess, the whole time. I do and... wonder if people mistake it for offensive as well. Because yeah. the term Crazy Ex-Girlfriend
1: gets thrown around a lot, especially... Obviously, between men, yeah, and maybe that's what's putting people off.
0: I think it's a very deliberate move, though. So I think that's exactly why because
1: it's toying with that stereotype.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. And um, it, it it kind of the show is so brilliant at using really um or kind of battling really quite dark topics and it's kind of smoothed over and we're kind of taken through the narrative through musical numbers and comedy. <laughs> and Rebecca herself is, she is a nightmare. A lot of the times she's not likable. And again, a lot of the characters around her are much more likable in a very kind of obvious way, but I don't know. She's, you've got to feel sorry for her. Um, I think actually she does learn throughout the four series to be accountable for some of her terrible actions. Yeah, she does. Um, but it's not all on her. You know, Josh, the person she moves for, <laughs> <laughs> I I love him because his character is so infuriating. It's like a love-hate thing. You know, I love to hate him. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, definitely. He's just a complete buffoon. Yeah, <laughs> And we've said this before, the actor who plays Josh is just...
0: Top Incredibly. notch.
1: <laughs> yeah. you, you you just think that he's a real real person that's wandered onto the set by
0: mistake. <laughs> it's so true, and they couldn't be more mismatched. But um, I ju- I just think it hits all the marks this program. Um, and I do think that dealing with uh heavy issues like surrounding mental health, I think it's very hard to get it right. Yeah. Um and they do strike that balance between kind of saying to the viewer hey like we're going to talk about this but we're going to make it kind of funny for you so it's not such a rough time but at the same time we're not going to be crude or like we're not going to be offensive about it
1: yeah no and i think you need a bit of light and shade when it comes to a lot of these topics
0: mm. i would say in this scenario likability is is really complex and i think because it crazy ex-girlfriend crosses over comedy drama and romantic musical it's it's a lot to take in and i think they they do it really successfully and probably more than anything else i've seen like you don't really see many musical comedy dramas do you (laughs) no
1: and they don't often get the praise and I suppose the award show buzz that they deserve this really kind of fell through it's such a shame it deserves
0: way more recognition yeah I would encourage everyone to watch it and be ready for some like very very strange content
1: (laughs) yeah please do and can I just say that your Josh is my Schmidt from New Girl Schmidt from New Girl I, cannot, I want to elope with this man. He's just absolutely ridiculous. Like, one of the most well-written characters. I was thinking to myself earlier that I wish I'd put it in my top three because I'm a simple woman. I like a quirky Jewish man. And even though he's misogynistic and he's a womanizer, it's that power of being uncool that is cool nowadays, especially on TV. He's a complete dick. But I yeah. also love how he defies that traditional, like, total... Like, he, he's basically, like, a total bro douchebag. But he's also really feminine and he's not afraid to be. Like, he's obsessed with mango chutney and he flocks around the apartment in a kimono. <laughs>
0: but it doesn't get much better than that, so... I haven't seen this, but that does make me want to see a new girl.
1: I think you would have you, to. It's an honourable mention. Would say that he
0: has, like, Schmidt has a bit of, like, a development across the series... He is does. He, is he yeah. Kind of always like that, or does he? He learn to be less misogynistic. <laughs>
1: yeah. No. He does. I mean, it's subtle the character development, but sort of throughout the first and second season, he develops this real love for Cece, which is um, Jess's best friend, and he only has eyes for her. And their romance kind of develops throughout the series. There's ups and downs, but a lot of this sort of bro. Uh, persona comes from his like deep insecurities like he was bullied um when he was younger he was like really overweight and seen as a bit of a nerd and as soon as he hit a certain age he decided to become like that jock womanizer like six-pack um trope I guess and it's mm. about how he navigates
0: for a lot of his past trauma and it's just done in such a funny clever way that's kind of reminds me of Nathaniel actually, and it reminds me of a lot of things in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, like I think the whole having trauma from your past or, or what your family expect from you as well, yeah, or um, maybe just be, yeah being kind of like a womanizer because you it's a way to like protect yourself. I do like how a lot of programs nowadays are going into the complexities of both women and men, yeah, and kind of framing their narratives to show a progression of like it's not just a stock character or a stereotype someone might act a certain way and do some shitty things and they can learn from it in a way that isn't like super cheesy I guess it's become kind of like a likable storyline now for people to delve into the trauma of their past Um a lot especially a lot in like comedy shows and to kind of come out the other end having learned something from it
1: yeah i I definitely think coming out the other side it can be quite endearing yeah that
0: brings me on to fleabag again as well
1: oh god yeah but max greenfield please like i love (laughs) you (laughs) please call me (laughs) well
0: there's children screaming outside so i think we should uh bring this to a (laughs) swift close yeah, I think the uh, the guests that we have, our favourite characters, I think their food will be getting cold, so we should probably be getting back to that dinner party.
1: Yeah, are we allowed to bring our
0: honourable mentions along
1: as plus ones?
0: I don't see why not. The more the merrier, as they say. It'd be a very uh, long dinner table, but I think we can make it work.
1: Yeah, bring a few uh, deck chairs into the mix. I think Schmidt and Rebecca might be at risk of becoming a thing. Ooh,
0: yeah, we don't want uh, anything to interrupt the the party, do we? Definitely, we don't some want Steven, sexual like, tension out in the corner. I think there's going to be some big personalities going on there. I have a feeling that uh, Prince Charming will feel a bit left out, really. Yeah, I feel like if we're going to go
1: as Shrek characters for Halloween as well, we need like a third person. Maybe we can put an ad out there or chuck it in a tinder bio and just be like shrek obsessed couple seek a third because we do need someone I feel like
0: that that could uh, produce some shady results but um that might be another interesting uh, podcast discussion to be fair see what we can get from that yeah also <laughs> can
1: someone put me in drag as mrs doubtfire i'm begging you i want a full <laughs> mrs doubtfire drag look going on like
0: I think that kid agrees. That that's
1: screaming. Oh my god, it's so loud. Okay. We've got ourselves
0: some fans clearly. <laughs> well, uh we need some. So, <laughs> thanks everyone for listening. Um if anyone wants to uh follow us on social media um and um, maybe see some hints about what our next episodes will be or just uh tell us what you think of what we've uh discussed so far, any ideas for the future. Um, then you can follow us on Instagram at uh, Ramble Without a Cause. See you at the party then. <laughs> See ya.